Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today we'll be discussing the article titled Synchronous Spiking Associated with Prefrontal High Gamma Oscillations Evokes a 5-HC Rhythmic Modulation of Spiking in Locus Ceruleus. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez, Associate Editor Professor Albrecht Stroh, and Professor Nelson Toda. So let's get started. Wow, did you hear this? The brain is talking to us. I mean, isn't it amazing, Albrecht and Nelson? Albrecht, why don't you start asking some questions? Thank you, Nino. Thank you so much um, for giving me the chance to conduct my first, very first podcast. So, uh, Nelson, I, I was so impressed on your paper because actually you, you put forward this a network mechanism by, by which the prefrontal cortex exerts a top-down control over a, a very distinct oscillation pattern of the locus ceruleus. And you find this only in a particular brain state, so-called active state. And um, this notion of um, top-down control, I think is very important because it adds to the emerging picture that there's not only a unidirectional flow of information, um, but also there's a very interwoven network, not too dissimilar what we learned also on the role of the thalamus and corticothalamic interactions. But um, maybe, maybe we can get started by really letting us know what did we hear now? And, and also, how did you come up with the idea of the top down? Was this actually an idea you had in the, in the very beginning or did it develop? Right. So that, that sound we just heard was the the sound of a, a sweet, sweet, successful experiment. The locus ceruleus is uh, uh, what we were listening to. So the sound there was the extracellular voltage recorded by an electrode in the rat locus ceruleus. And we've converted those voltages into an audio sound. Now the locus ceruleus is this small structure in the brainstem. It's a collection of, of norepinephrine neurons and it projects over virtually the entire central nervous system. So we're talking about most of the forebrain, we're talking even about the spinal cord. And if the listener was paying attention to that recording, they probably heard in the middle a transient increase in activity and then some silence. And this is actually a, a nice illustration of a principle of these fascinating neurons that they actually regulate their own activity. They'll fire, they'll release, norepinephrine and say the prefrontal cortex, and then they'll turn themselves off for a little bit. So this brain region is, you know, it's in the brainstem, it's really deep, and it's very small. In rats, we're talking 200 micrometers medial lateral. Uh, we're talking about 500 micrometers and uh, dorsal ventral. And then in the anterior posterior direction, we're talking about one millimeter. So if you want to hit that with an electrode, it's really, really tough. And that's why that sound is not just nice to hear, but it's also a really good feeling when, when you hear it and you, and you know you're there. So you, you asked a bit about how the work began, right? Yeah, so I, I was wondering, uh, because of the classical role, did you start up with the hypothesis that actually there could be also a top-down control of the prefrontal cortex? I mean, you mentioned also in the paper that the prefrontal cortex is unique in a sense to other cortical regions. 
that there is also their direct projections to the LC. So was that an hypothesis that you had as first or did you develop this project first in a different way? Yeah, that's, um, that's a kind of a funny story. You know, I was just mentioning that the LC, the locus ceruleus is projecting to the prefrontal cortex, for example. So projecting to there, you would think, okay, then norepinephrine is modulating the prefrontal cortex. And this is a, you know, classical idea in systems neuroscience, a very old idea that neuromodulators, which are related to arousal, they're going from, let's say, uh, the brainstem to the forebrain for the purposes of, you know, waking you up, speeding up reaction times, adjusting the state of the organism. And um, like most studies, it, it starts out one way and, and often ends up in, a, in an entirely different perspective. So, you know, this work really all started with Human Safai's work in PNAS in, let's see, I think that was 2015. So this was work that he did with, with, with Oksana Eschinko and with Stefano Panzeri. And they showed that, that locus release neurons actually kind of periodically fluctuate their firing rate, either very slowly at one to two Hertz or faster. So sometimes firing rate will go up and down at, at five Hertz. And I remember also Oksana once showing me like, look, you can see single neurons in the rat locus ceruleus that, that seem to be firing kind of rhythmically. And this got me curious in the very classic perspective of, well, if we know locus ceruleus neurons are you know, fluctuating their firing at one to two hertz, maybe to regulate neuronal excitability that we see during you know, slow wave sleep and things like that, what's this mysterious five hertz doing in terms of neuromodulation? It must be a, a neuromodulatory signal acting in the forebrain. And, you know, we got into it and, and, and did all of this work in the paper. And it, it turned out that the relationship we were seeing between the prefrontal cortex and the locus ceruleus was not that the LC was affecting prefrontal cortex, but it was actually in the opposite direction. And there are projections in the opposite direction. So that's where things got, you know, really exciting. And maybe one thing I should note here is that the majority of studies looking at prefrontal and locus ceruleus interactions were stimulation studies. So you stimulate the locus ceruleus, you record prefrontal, or you stimulate prefrontal and you record locus ceruleus. There have been very few studies that looked at spontaneous interactions between these structures. One of the rare ones is, is work by Vrimi Lestian and Susan Saraz's lab back in, this might be the 80s or very early 90s. Um, so I think we, you know, we had a nice, unique data set uh, to explore. We discovered something unexpected. Yeah, I think looking at spontaneous activity is really important to unravel the principal functional architecture of a circuit. But of course, there's a problem with that, that you or the other, put it the other way around. If you stimulate, you have a timing in your recording. And so you needed to infer causality in a different way. You used the, the concept of transfer entropy. And I think you explained it very nicely in the paper. Could you maybe share it with us? What does it actually mean and how can you use it to infer exactly this causality that this five hertz rhythm is not driving the PFC, but, that the, but it is driven by previous activity of the PFC? Yeah, I'm happy to, to talk about that a little bit. Um, maybe I'll just first mention to the listeners that, that 
you know, the, the big sort of conceptual advance in the paper that we you know, used transfer entropy to study was that we, we found that a very discrete band of high gamma oscillations in the cortical local field potential, really discrete, 60 hertz to 200 hertz, a really bright spot in the spectrum, unbelievably discrete. Um, this was preceding these rhythmic fluctuations in LC firing rate that were going up and down at five hertz. And, and the other, I think, big advance here was to see that prefrontal single units, it wasn't their firing rate during high gamma oscillations in the prefrontal cortex that really mattered. It was the synchronous firing of a bunch of, of single units. So the way we ended up using transfer entropy, and, and here I, I want to highlight because we didn't come up with that method. I mean, it's, uh, it's really mathematicians working on this stuff. And I, I want to highlight the the writing and the explanations of Michel Bezerv at the MPI, the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems in, in Tübingen, Germany. And also I want to highlight uh, the, the writing and the explanations of Stefano Panzeri at the Italian Institute of Technology in Rovereto, Italy, because really what, what we used and what I learned conceptually about applying the method to understanding brain physiology, I, I learned from reading their work and also really helpful discussions with them. So Effectively, you know, if you want to study interactions between two structures, you might just look at the timing of two signals. If one thing consistently occurs before another, the natural way to interpret this is that, you know, that preceding thing caused the other thing. Now, we kind of have to put aside that in the brain, this is a total mess because everything is interconnected and there's feed forward and feedback and there's other structures, just like the LC that are seemingly doing similar or redundant functions, um, the entire concept of causality, it's maybe something that we have to be extremely careful with, but uh, we have to do the best we can. And one way of assessing or inferring potential causality between two brain signals is this method called transfer entropy. So it's, it's basically answering the question, how much can we predict about one signal? from the past of another signal. So let's assume X, maybe this is prefrontal cortex signal, is influencing Y, and maybe this is your locus ceruleus signal, firing rate or whatever. So basically what we're doing with transfer entropy is we're saying, sure, with signal Y, we can, we can predict signal Y's current state from its own past because it's, you know, it's a continuous signal. It's just changing over time. And if you look a little bit in the past, you can predict where you're going to be right now and a little bit, you know, and, um, and that makes total sense. But what transfer entropy is doing is it, it's saying, how much better do we get at understanding the current state of Y if we include the history of X? Do we get better than if we just look at the past of, of Y alone? So that's, that's the method we used. And, um, and it allowed us to draw some interesting conclusions throughout the paper, you know, showing that, that these high gamma prefrontal oscillations don't just precede the locus ceruleus five hertz fluctuations in firing rate, but they, they seem to have a causal role over these LC oscillations. So every time a high gamma transient burst is occurring, uh, the locus ceruleus is ramping its firing rate. And this whole plot process is playing out rhythmically at five hertz for some reason that we don't understand yet. Nelson, you explained beautifully the, the total mess and 
and even me as a non-physicist can get it. I have another question quickly. It must be very difficult to record from Locus Cerullos because it's deep in the brainstem. It's a small thing. Do you think going forward into the future, will it be possible to have implanted electrodes so you can see the behavioral relevance? And, and how did you overcome these methodological uh, difficulties? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So the, the study that we're talking about today was conducted under anesthesia, a type of uro, uh, anesthesia called urethane. Um, it's absolutely critical that we do these sorts of recordings in awake organisms. Um, we do run into some problems here. Uh, already, it's you know, technically challenging to, to find the locus ceruleus in an anesthetized implant. Um, I mean, once you're there, you know you're there and you get that beautiful sound we heard in the beginning and then you can record you know, for a long time. But when we're talking about behaving animals, we run into this issue that um, the locus ceruleus is sitting right next to the fourth ventricle and the brainstem is likely being moved around every time the organism is running, breathing, moving its trunk muscles. I think even if, even if an organism is head fixed, if they're going to flex their trunk muscles at all, which even, for example, a head fixed monkey can do, um, the recording quality in awake organisms, you know, is, is going to be lowered. And that's one of the big problems we need to solve in the, in the future. In our study, we recorded multi-unit activity. We summed up the, the activity from um, many single units at once. But I should say that the, the recordings were using 32 electrode probes, very thin silicon probes with 32 very closely spaced electrodes on that single probe. So you didn't damage the nucleus, so the locus really is so much. And of course, in the anesthetized state, these movement forces are, are reduced a lot. So you can record a ton of neurons, right? And You'll see in the paper that while most LC neurons are participating in this population oscillation, they're not all participating. And this has a, an important you know, point here that you can't just record a low quality signal in a behaving animal and necessarily see this. So I'm looking forward to you know, the future with more advanced flexible electrodes, hopefully getting high quality recordings in the awake rat locus ceruleus and looking for this signal. Because we don't know right now if it's something that is related to anesthesia or if it's something that has a functional relevance. But at least we know now that the signal is existing in the LC. Nelson, quick question. You said that not all units in the locus ceruleus were firing. Now we know that these neurons have a lot of electrical synapses between them. So do you think there's another kind of control that regulates the activity within the locus ceruleus to adapt to these cortical oscillations? Yeah, so, so, so you know, you're effectively asking, what are the cellular mechanisms inside the locus ceruleus that, that are contributing to this weird rhythmic activity? I don't know if anyone knows the answer, even for these one to two Hertz oscillations that have been you know, long known to occur in locus ceruleus and synchronized with the, with the cortex, for example, during slow wave sleep, I don't even think we know really why these fluctuations are occurring in, in, in locus ceruleus. And, and I think also, and Albrecht can talk to, about this, that we really don't totally know why they're occurring in the cortex either. But I think there's a consensus that that it's you know a combination of local mechanisms and a combination of 
drive from other structures. Um, and, and locus cirrhosis is probably no exception, but we don't have an answer yet. If I had to hazard a guess, maybe put forth a, a testable hypothesis on a whim, maybe this is, maybe there's some, some reasons this wouldn't work, but off the top of my head, you remember the, in the clip at the beginning, the sound of the cells firing, I, I told you that oftentimes they will fire and then they will self-inhibit. They don't just self-inhibit, they laterally inhibit one another. So norepinephrine floats around the locus ceruleus and, and kind of turns off nearby neurons, right, for, for a brief period. And it could be that once locus ceruleus enters this, this five hertz rhythmic realm of firing, um, that these sort of population increases in firing rate cause transient periods of, of inhibition. But I don't know why they would always last, you know, five hertz is around 200 milliseconds. Why would they last 200 milliseconds? Is there something about clearance of norepinephrine that, you know, in the locus ceruleus, given the density or the placement of transporters for removing norepinephrine, that lends itself to, you know, inhibition that lasts 200 milliseconds? That's, you know, it's kind of a wild idea, but it's uh, definitely something we have to, we have to think about. But coming back to the point, because you just raised the question of anesthesia. And of course, everyone is asking for awake recordings. Um, and um, certainly the anesthetized condition with urethane is not at all comparable uh, with awake. Uh, but however, maybe if we look a little bit more general, you, you found out actually that this 5 hertz, the impact of the PFC to the 5 hertz oscillation is is kind of exclusive to the so-called active brain state or other people call it persistent state or desynchronized state. Actually, it's a negative definition. We just do not have large scale oscillations. So wouldn't you also think that this is maybe a more general mechanism? How many brain states do we have? Is it equal to the vigilant states? So, so that's a really provocative question. question. How many brain states do we have? <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. I, I was I was feeling provoked. <laughs> um, yeah, so these are all really interesting questions about state definitions, and it's I think it's a really tricky area. I mean, there's some obvious things that people who do EEG recordings have known about for a long time. Slow wave sleep looks very different from from awake organism. When cats shut their eyes, you seem to see some rhythm that's particular to this quiet wakefulness. So, you know, there were some things we noticed by eye as a, as a field. And, you know, maybe for the audience, we can, we can say that this activated state is, yeah, effectively the absence of low frequency oscillations and maybe an enhancement, more, more, more power in the high frequency bands. So things above 20 hertz. And this is kind of in opposition to the slow wave state, which is these kind of, let's say, sub two hertz oscillations. So we have these two states, but, you know, the question of, you know, what the role of anesthesia is in all of this is, um, is one that's difficult to answer, but I actually like urethane anesthesia for this purpose, because it's an anesthesia that for reasons we don't understand, the cortical local field potential will sort of transition between these slow wave states and these activated states. And indeed, what we saw was that this LC five hertz rhythmic population firing fluctuations primarily occurred during the activated state. And I, I think it's, it's, of course, tempting to speculate that since the activated state under urethane anesthesia looks like the non-slow wave sleep awake state 
um, it's tempting to speculate that, well, we'll probably see LC5 Hertz oscillations there. Um, but, you know, that's just speculation. We don't, we don't know until we get the data. To your provocative question, um, I, I'm going to actually let someone else answer it in this sense. I, I'll just mention that there's a really nice review on this topic in, in the annual reviews of neuroscience in March of 2020. It's by Dave McCormick and Dennis uh, Nesvogel and Biu He. It's called The Neuromodulation of Brain State and Behavior. And uh, if you guys will, will permit it, I'm actually going to read a small quote from here. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. So let's see. So, so they say that the state of the brain at any time, any given time, can be thought of as a point in extremely high dimensional space where each position along each dimension corresponds to the activity of a relevant neural unit, such as a neuron or a group of neurons or a brain region. And then over time, constantly varying activity manifests as a trajectory in this state space. It's a little bit like us humans did our very basic pattern separation looking at data and we saw oh, there's slow waves and there's something that looks more flat. So we kind of did this uh, very simple division of states. And the point that they start to make in the review is that with you know, more advanced methods, there are perhaps ways to start finding more and more patterns in, in, in brain state. But there is a, a warning here um, where they, you know, they say that given anatomical and functional constraints, and this is again a quote from, from their review article, they say large regions of, of state space are prohibited or never even uh, visited. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, in figuring out what the relevant patterns are in brain state and if they're kind of epiphenomenon or if they serve a function. It's possible we may just observe these activity patterns uh, during particular, you know, organismal states like anesthesia or, you know, focused attention in, a, in an awake organism, but then they don't have any functional relevance. And that's why we need to be recording from lots of neurons in multiple brain regions and doing very nice, you know, manipulations of, of organisms state through complex behavioral tasks through letting a, a behaving animal transition into sleep naturally and continuing to record so that we can start to parse apart if these patterns that, that we can isolate in brain state seem to really have a, a relationship with neural activity, with neurotransmitter release, and with what the organisms were actually doing at that moment in time. Nelson, wonderful quote. And this multidimensionality you know, in the brain, I think really hits the point, and, but needs to be also controlled. And, you know, one way that could be controlled is through breathing. And that's a little bit of a, a, a other aspect of this, because if you have quiet breathing, it seems to quiet you down. You can focus better, deep breathing. And people have shown that in the prefrontal cortex, you have oscillations that go with the breathing rhythm. And also, you know that the pupils, they go with the noradrenergic, cholinergic oscillations. So, that, so basically, you have this control that controls your brain state. So when I read your paper, I was thinking, you know, these fast gamma oscillations, if they go back and forth and back and forth between the locus realis, could this initiate a panic? You know that if people are hyperventilating, they are panicking, could this feed forward mechanism actually be something that you need to control very carefully uh, if you're too vigilant? And that could be part of the 
behavioral context. Sorry that I speculate like that badly. No, that's a that's a really great idea. So so these respiration rhythms where where people have measured you know diaphragm muscle EMG or um, done you know put a flow meter in the I suppose in the nose or something like this they they find that in rodents at least the respirations which are of course periodic they're ranging between I think either one or two hertz and up to 12 hertz, okay? And, and they change depending upon the state of the animal. So, you know, under anesthesia, you know, they're, I think they're around three or four hertz, which is a little lower than what we're observing here. So I don't think what we're observing is related to respirations. But if you, if you put an organism in a novel environment, so now we're talking about not anesthesia, but you put a, a, an awake organism in a novel environment, uh, the rate of respirations can increase. And there's even a nice, some nice studies out there showing that neurons in the, in the uh, pre-Butzinger nucleus, which is involved in controlling respiration rhythms, they're actually projecting to the, to the locus ceruleus. And there, there may be some interactions here between you know, novelty, which the locus ceruleus is responding to. I mean, novel environments, the locus ceruleus becomes very active. This is part of arousal, right? And breathing changes. So these things all seem to be linked together. Um, my speculation about the function of these five hertz rhythms has not been centered so much on respirations, although I think, I think that's a really good point. And if we ever do these experiments, I'm gonna measure respirations now because you said this. Um, but the project <laughs> thing has been, <laughs> thank you for the, <laughs> for the good idea. What we see here, these five hertz oscillations in LC firing rate, well, the locus ceruleus is very much involved in shifting attention, really reorienting your sensory organs, okay? So moving your eyes around in the world, moving your head, um, learning to pay attention to, you know, how things look in the world and ignoring the sound of things. So it's, it's involved in, in, in reorienting attention. And one of the really interesting things out there in the human literature, and it's even been shown in ferrets, that reorienting saccades, which we know activate the locus ceruleus, they occur rhythmically at around uh, five hertz. So there seem to be some organismal states where you will maybe rhythmically shift your attention around in the world at around five hertz, uh, either covertly or overtly by moving your sensory organs. And in humans, we know that a very narrow band of high gamma oscillations that looks a lot like the high gamma we see under anesthesia in terms of the, the, the band characteristics, what frequency is occurring in, those high gamma bursts occur during novel events, and they occur in relation to uh, saccades that involve reorienting attention. So, you know, the missing piece here is to actually record locus ceruleus, look for these five hertz oscillations, in the awake behaving organism as they explore the world. And uh, uh, of course, and record high gamma oscillations at the same time. This is something that you know, we're aiming to do. There's a lot of things to do, not enough money or time, but we're really aiming to do this. Uh, Nelson, I, was like to, I would like to follow up on this because for me, it was really this top-down control of the PFC to LC. I said it in the beginning, reminded me a lot about what we learned in the last decade about the cortical control about the thalamus so that actually the cortex can so to speak decide what it wants wants to 
perceive from the world in terms of its sensory input. So, I mean, maybe this is oversimplifying things, but could it be given also the exclusive synaptic connections or at least direct synaptic connections from PFC to LC, might it be that the PFC is actually driving its own vigilance? So I now I want to be very vigilant um, and now therefore I, I drive myself, so to speak. I love it. That's, that's wonderful. It's actually one of my uh, slides when I teach students about, about the locus ceruleus that I, I, I tell them, hey, maybe, maybe the prefrontal cortex can control its own norepinephrine release and the norepinephrine release throughout the brain, but we don't know yet. Um, but wouldn't that be cool? And the evidence I give them for this, I always ask the students, well, normally I start out, you know, I've explained what norepinephrine is and, and some of the things we've talked about today that it's involved in arousal. So arousal meaning wakefulness, meaning controlling your autonomic response, sweating, heart rate changes, controlling your reaction times, how quickly you respond to a stimulus. You know, so the students have this in mind and, and I tell them, okay, now imagine, you know, you're playing a video game and these are things where you have to react very quickly to stimuli and you make a mistake, right? And you get this like huge arousal response. So, so you, you feel more alert, maybe your palms are getting sweaty and you, you often think to yourself, maybe, maybe really consciously, like I have to chill out next time. I made a mistake. I need to be less impulsive. I need to calm down. You actually need to like dampen your arousal. And there's wonderful work by people like Matt McGinley, Vincent uh, Breton Provencher and uh, Beckett Ebitz. These are all um, uh, colleagues in the, in the locus realist field who, who have labs now. And um, they've done great work showing that, you know, when decision-making related brain regions like the anterior cingulate cortex, uh, when the neurons there respond to mistakes, it seems to predict a change in arousal in preparation for the next trial to improve your behavior. Um, of course, they were inferring this from, from pupil size. We need to do the simultaneous prefrontal locus realis recordings that are so difficult, um, but, but there's a lot of evidence out there um, that this is happening. And, and it's been a, you know, a very old idea um, going back to you know, old kind of engineering schemes of conflict monitoring in, in the brain that, you know, you need some sort of control system that monitors your performance and then adjusts the organism so that it has better performance and doesn't screw up again in the future. And people always speculated this involved interactions between decision-making related brain regions in the, in the front of the brain and very deep arousal related uh, brain regions. Maybe here I can mention something that, that might be of interest to the listener here about how the signal might get conveyed from prefrontal cortex. So, you know, a lot of what we know about this is, is based on stimulation studies. So you put a, 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 a wire electrode in prefrontal cortex, or you put a, a so-called optrode. I mean, it's just stimulating with a different modality. Maybe you have cell type specificity. You can target the cells that are projecting locus ceruleus. But in general, the idea is you stimulate prefrontal and you see some response in the locus ceruleus. In some cases, people have done chemical stimulation of, of the prefrontal cortex so using a pharmacological agent to make prefrontal cortex you know, more active. Um, but the, the picture isn't so simple. So you often get a combination of excitation and inhibition 
of locus ciliaris neurons. So the nature of this top-down signal, at least from stimulation studies, in the absence of, of studies that really looked at the kind of spontaneous activity of these structures, gave us a mixed picture. Maybe it's driving LC. It seems to, it seems to definitely drive LC, but it seems like prefrontal might also be able to inhibit the LC. And, and here's where we get into the weird cellular connectivity of the locus ciliaris. So I said it's the small brain regions, tightly packed neurons, but the neurons in the locus ciliaris do something truly bizarre. They ramify all of their uh, dendrites and, and they send them out of the nucleus to two locations. So let's see if I get this right. It would be ventromedial anterior, sorry, dorsomedial anterior and ventrolateral posterior. So it's kind of sending out its axons out the back end and out the front end of all, uh, sorry, sending out the dendrites, not the axons, the dendrites into these two zones. And they leave the locus ciliaris. And all these neurons, dendrites go out, you know, 200, 300 micrometers, 400 micrometers away from the, the locus ciliaris cell bodies. And that's where the prefrontal neurons are projecting. So the, the glutamate coming out of prefrontal, you know, projection neurons isn't going in into the locus ciliaris proper. It was actually an early kind of conundrum of, okay, well, the prefrontal cortex sends all these axons down and they stop just outside the LC. <laughs> they stop short and, you know, what's going on here? But it, it turns out that's, you know, that's where all the dendrites are. Um, there's a beautiful, beautiful anatomy study from Gary Aston Jones and, and Pat Card in the Journal of Neuroscience in, in 2004 that I think has some of the most beautiful pictures. And it was a very careful study of, of this peri-LC uh, area. And they showed that there's actually GABA neurons there, okay, local interneurons. And prefrontal afferents, they suppose are prefrontal afferents, glutamate afferents will um, synapse on dendrites of LC norepinephrine neurons, but they'll also synapse on local GABA interneurons, which themselves synapse on LC interneurons. So now you can have inhibition or excitation. And then you also have from their electron microscopy study in that paper, you can see that there are GABA neurons that inhibit other GABA interneurons that inhibit LC neurons. So you can have disinhibition via that route. So we start to have really complex pathway uh, going from the prefrontal cortex to the locus ciliaris. And this, this makes it really tricky when you want to understand uh, how these signals are generated, what is the role of top-down control, and, and how is it being kind of carried out in the brain. And here's where I think, for example, if we can tag neurons like optotagging. So if you could separate the interneurons and the locus ciliaris neurons, um, and, and record them simultaneously along with prefrontal cortex in, you know, combination with complex behavioral tasks, really monitoring the, the state of the animal. I think this is a good way to make advances in understanding this. Nelson, I can relate so much to it because, you know, each time, let's say I climb a mountain and it gets steep and I get nervous, then I start sweating and then I have to tell myself, you know, keep calm, keep calm. And then probably that's where my forebrain tells, the cortex tells my locus ciliaris, you know, it's, it's okay. And then suddenly things go easy. You know, it's, it's fantastic how, how it works. So now I think we have a neural correlate for that. Nelson, I was just wondering, because we, we were talking about this uh, functional subpopulations, and I think I very much liked um, getting to the, back to the manuscript a little bit. Um, how you actually found the functional subpopulation in the PFC, which uh, fired around 100 milliseconds prior to the 
a kind of onset of this five hertz rhythm in the LC. And, uh, but then you kind of rule it out that this is driving also the, um, the direct top-down control and you furthermore state, and I think that's very nice also referring to Nikos Logothetis year-long uh, work on this, that this high gamma itself also has to be local. So this is a little bit of conundrum. So, so do you think there is still a functional subpopulation in the PFC to be found, which actually drives the high gamma and therefore directly the connection, or is it a pure network effect of the entire PFC? So what should we do next to, to find that out? Yeah, well, again here, this is a nice example of, you know, you have a clear idea in mind and then nature just does something completely different and confuses you because, you know, we saw this high gamma transient sort of burst of high gamma power just before the peaks of this rhythmic five hertz firing of locus ceruleus neurons. And so we said, okay, well, the, the high gamma oscillations, they must be involved. Our transfer entropy analysis suggests that they kind of they have some causal role putatively. So that's great. But then it must be that prefrontal neurons are firing more during high gamma right? The high gamma oscillations must be a sign of just more general spiking, which would fit with the stimulation studies. The prefrontal neurons spike more, and then they cause the locus ceruleus neurons to spike. And for some reason, this is playing out rhythmically in this situation. But when we looked at firing rate, we actually didn't see a change in, in, in firing rate during this high gamma burst. On the other hand, we saw that the high gamma burst was occurring around 29 milliseconds before the change in LC firing rate, which seemed to be really perfect because the, the, the you know, studies with monosynaptic tracing show that the conduction velocity is around 30 milliseconds in the rat going from the region we were recording to the LC. So it's like, okay, well, this high gamma oscillation is occurring, but there's no change in firing rate how is this getting to the locus ceruleus? I mean, high gamma oscillations are a local event. It's not, they're not, you know, causing transmitter release per se at a target region unless it, they're associated with a change in firing rate. And, uh, and then we, you know, we had some single unit recordings in prefrontal cortex in addition to the, the field potential we were looking at for the, the high gamma. And, and so we looked at synchrony among single units. And it turned out that during these high gamma oscillations, you have a lot of prefrontal units that are responding in synchrony. And it's, it's really starting at this, you know, 29-ish milliseconds prior to the change in LC firing rate. And it's, it's lasting throughout that LC firing rate peak. So we took this as evidence that it's not the spike rate in prefrontal cortex, uh, which matters, which is what one might just believe from looking at the prior stimulation studies. Instead, it seems to be the synchronous firing among prefrontal neurons that, that drives the locus ceruleus. Now, this is not to say we didn't see changes in prefrontal firing rate during this whole you know, prefrontal LC 5 hertz interaction, we did. In fact, we saw a large number of prefrontal neurons that phase locked their firing rate to the 5 hertz oscillation in the LC. So they had a consistent relationship, they were tied together but the prefrontal firing rate changes were 100 milliseconds before the LC firing rate changed. So this can't be monosynaptic. It just can't be. It could be polysynaptic, absolutely. And we don't know the answer to this yet. Um, but I, I think one of the cool aspects of the study, maybe people can look at the final figure in the discussion if they take a look at our paper and 
um, they can see this, this nice model where you seem to have a change in, in prefrontal firing rate. And this seems to consistently occur you know, at the trough when the LC is silent. And then right after that change in prefrontal firing rate, you start to get a high gamma burst, which is associated with synchronous prefrontal firing. And then the LC firing rate is starting to rise up. And then for some reason, the process just keeps repeating over and over. Um, so we have maybe more questions than answers from this study. Yeah, speaking about more questions than, answer, uh, than answers, uh, so, so what would be your take-home message to, to the audience? Yeah, I think the take-home message here is that we see a link between a very, very specific band of oscillations in the local field potential, a 60 hertz to 200 hertz oscillation. We're going to call it high gamma. And that has a very clear relationship with a specific form of LC activity, uh, which is a periodic fluctuation in LC firing rate that goes up and down every 200 milliseconds. And during those high gamma uh, events in the prefrontal cortex, you have synchronous firing among prefrontal neurons. So they may be involved in, in this process of uh, changes in locus ceruleus firing rate. Nelson and Albright, this was really an great conversation. And why don't we close the eyes now and listen again to this incredible sound of the locus surrealis, how it fires away and controls our brain state. Jamie, please play it again. Thank you so much, everybody, and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.